It's a Xerox of a movie that's nowhere near as indelible as the originals it purports to emulate. That's from Bruce McCabe of Boston Globe, and in many ways, my feeling of blowout. Our feature review this time here on Cinephile, a movie that my man Joe loves, so I finally got to see it, and we're doing a Mount Rushmore Brian De Palma, uh, which should be interesting. Even more fascinating, Antkind, 705-page book from Charlie Kaufman. I finished it, and I got my review for all of you. I got a good 15-minute book review. How about that? That's what we're doing now in the era of the pandemic, is we have to do book reviews by famous screenwriters, but I promise you, the excerpts are very funny, and hopefully you'll find it as interesting as I did. Uh, as always, please go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review, and show us some support. You can follow us on Twitter, myself at Adnan S. Virk, and of course, the podcast at Cinephile Pod. Scott Rogowski coming up with Rags Time. That's always fun and entertaining. Uh, thanks to um, Adam Amin, Dallin Cuff. I mean, the reviews have been great. People love Rags. So appreciate those two and all of you for always listening and for passing along your support. Plus, James Gandolfini loves Green Day. All that more coming up. First off, though, Blowout. While recording sound effects for a slasher flick, Jack Terry, John Travolta, stumbles upon a real-life horror, a car careening off a bridge and into a river. Jack jumps into the water and fishes out Sally, Nancy Allen from the car, but the other passenger is already dead, a governor intending to run for president. As Jack does some investigating of his tapes and starts a perilous romance with Sally, he enters a tangled web of conspiracy that might leave him for dead. Has in many ways a lot of, of De Palma's hallmarks, you know, um, the way he has impending doom, uh, the satirical elements, you know, the movie within a movie. I mean, the first part of the film, you're saying, what is this terrible slasher movie? Then you realize John Travolta is a sound engineer and he's doing sound effects for it. And you go, oh, that makes sense because this movie is actually terrible what he's doing, which is the point. He's one of these sound engineers that does stuff for these terrible schlocky movies. Even the concept of a sound engineer is interesting. At one point, he's explaining it to Sally because, you know, when there's the sound of a scream or, you know, there's a the sound of uh, wind, like, you know, I've got to get all those sounds and put it into these movies. Uh, but then you have the real motivating incident, which I mentioned, which is that blowout. Um, and was it murder or was it just something that happened to the tires? And that whole sequence I thought was really intricately done. When, when he tries to match up the sound with the video, I mean, it's De Palma's best because he really goes deep into this and it, it really exposes the nitty gritty of trying to reconstruct a crime. You feel like this is the Sapruder film, at least for Brian De Palma and for this John Travolta character. And I thought the first half was really good. Like I said, it's intriguing. Uh, but I thought ultimately the film didn't work as much for me because kind of like that review, it was just kind of a Xerox of other movies. I mean, the Hitchcock stuff, I don't mind. Again, even the ending, taking a patriotic moment and then putting a thriller involved rather than North by Northwest and Mount Rushmore. You've got uh, this big Independence Day rally in Philadelphia and the Liberty Bell and others Travolta trying to find her. But I just felt at times it didn't feel as inspired as some of his other work. It just felt like he was being too derivative. Like I said, the Hitchcock illusions are there. But even the whole concept of the film, this is Antonioni's blow-up, which was uh, back in 1966, the whole concept of it. And at times watching, I'm like, Jesus, Brian, can't you get it your own idea? Like, dude, he, just, he just lifts ideas from all over the place, makes his own thing. And like I said, in other movies, I don't mind as much because, you know, Dressed to Kill, I can appreciate the homages he was making and Body Double, but this time it's kind of a, a pastiche of different references, which I guess is the same criticism you can give against Quentin Tarantino, who takes stuff all over the place and tries to mash it into one. Other times it works, and I think Brian De Palma is a truly great director, but this time, at least for me, it didn't work as much, particularly the second half. It felt like it devolved into a rather generic thriller, and John Lithgow playing the, the bad guy of the week, and just the whole concept seemed a little bit ludicrous, and honestly, for me, I, I wasn't as uh, struck by it as I hoped to be. Travolta, I thought, did give a good performance, and this is an interesting point in his career. This was after Saturday Night Fever, so he was trying to show he could be a little more serious, have a little bit more of an edge to him. But ultimately, uh, I didn't think it worked as much for me. And I'm upset to say this because my man Joe is the one who is in encouraging me to watch this. He loves Blowout. I'm going to give it two and a half Maple Leafs. Again, I liked it. I didn't love it. I'd have no desire to watch it again. I totally understand Joe's appreciation for it, being a sound engineer. And that aspect of it was interesting. And De Palma's infatuation with Dennis Franz. Now that I've seen four De Palma movies over this pandemic, and I've seen Body Double, Dress to Kill, Carrie, and now uh, Blowout. God, Dennis Franz is everywhere. Loves that guy. Long before NYPD Blue and uh, Andy Sipwitz. And he's always good, by the way. Uh, it wasn't as exciting for me as it was for Joe. Joe, I give you the floor. This is one of your favorite movies of all time. Why do you love Blowout? Oh, I love Blow Up for so many reasons, but you're right. Dennis Franz, he, has he always looked like he's about <laughs> 60 years old? Even back then, he... Right. Even then, I'm he wasn't like, bald, man. but already losing some hair, already a little overweight, like well on his way to getting paunchy. Like I couldn't imagine ever Dennis Franz looking like a young man. You're right. He's always looked a little older than everybody else. Oh, yeah. like It, it was already coming off the top in 1981, you know, his hairline right there. 
Uh, no, I do like this movie quite a bit. Um, might be my favorite Brian De Palma film just because, you know, working in sound and you, I know you watched the documentary on uh, sound and filmmaking and just the amount of work that goes into it. When I was rewatching it over the weekend, I just appreciated so much that I'm a sound guy in 2020 versus 1981 because he's using you know four different machines to methodically sync up the audio with the film that he created and he's like going back and forth and marking stuff and all that I can just do on an editing system in a few clicks so it really made me appreciate that and you know I understand what you're saying I I've talked to people about this before and either they like it like me or they just find it a little convoluted um, a little bit too much. I agree with you without giving too much away. Um, the ending, there, there's a lot going on. And John Travolta just kind of slips through everyone <laughs> during the climax, you know. But my favorite thing about it is what I think you you're, you view as convoluted. I, I appreciate in the sense that it is a Brian De Palmian type genre where it is, you know, a partial slasher, partial conspiracy movie slash political thriller, a crime drama satire just to the process of uh filmmaking in hollywood and and for all those reasons i like it i heard a good quote that when i was reading about brian de palma where in order to play with language you have to know language and he knows this visual language so if he's taking different ideas from different directors different genres i'm perfectly comfortable with that at least in this case of the movie one thing i will say adnan and i don't know if you noticed this this is this isn't too much of a spoiler but John Travolta, when he's in a rush, he does not close doors, and he does not put the phone back on the hook when he when he's leaving. I'm just like John Travolta, you what are you doing? Leaving your truck door open? I know you're in a rush, but like someone's gonna steal. At least you take your keys out of the ignition. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's a funny observation. I actually did not notice that, but I I do notice that sometimes in movies. I'm like like I talked about this with Back to the Future too. Like how ridiculous is that when Marty and Doc go to visit? You know, Marty wants to go back and get Jennifer. How ridiculous is it that they leave the door open? Like, well, obviously, someone's going to jump in this DeLorean and go back. That's that's a good observation right. by you. Um, because of Blowout, we're going to do the Mount Rushmore Brian De Palma films a little bit later on. As you can tell by Joe's passion, it's going to be in his top four. It's not going to be in mine, but you'll find out mine's a little bit later on. I cannot wait to talk about Charlie Kaufman's new book. It's called Ant Kind. A couple of reviews here. The Washington Post, a dyspeptic satire that owes much to Kurt Vonnegut and Thomas Pynchon, propelled by Coffin's deep imagination, considerable writing ability, and bullseye wit. NPR, Coffin is a master of language, a sight to behold. The New York Times book review, an astonishing creation, riotously funny, an exceptionally good book. I'm going to read about like 10 excerpts from the book coming up because it's really funny and hopefully you'll be laughing as much as I'm going to enjoy reading from it. And it's not often that you laugh out loud while reading a book. I laughed out loud while reading Charlie Kaufman's Ant Kind. Some news items before we get to uh, Scott Rogowski, Rags Time. Mulan is going to premiere on Disney+. Plus. Well, this is bad news here for the theaters. Mulan was trying to come in to movie theaters uh, along with uh, Tenant, which we're still waiting on indefinitely. And now Disney+, Plus has over 16.5 million paying subscribers as of August 3rd. And they're saying, what the hell? Mulan is going to bypass American theaters, go straight to Disney Plus next month. So it's going to premiere on September 4th for 30 bucks. I mean, think about that. People are wondering, how come movies are 20 bucks? Well, the thought is you go see it with somebody else. Well, Mulan, you're definitely taking wife, kids, etc. So for 30 bucks, you can watch Mulan. One-time viewing. Unbelievable. Between Disney Plus, Hulu, and ESPN Plus, the company has surpassed 100 million in global SVOD subscribers. That's made the company even more confident about their future. Uh, obviously, The Mandalorian was a big hit, so... I want to see Milan on the big screen. Now we're going to have to pay 30 bucks September 4th. Hopefully we get Tenet at some point in September as well. All right, other news in addition to Milan. How about Ben Affleck? After earning some of the best reviews of his acting career for The Way Back, he's ready to make his return behind the camera. Apparently he's a son of direct The Big Goodbye for Paramount. And this is an adaptation of the Sam Watson book, The Big Goodbye, Chinatown, and the last year's of Hollywood. Wow, this sounds awesome. Non-fiction book, behind-the-scenes stories of Jack Nicholson, Faye Dunaway, from Roman Polanski's directing to Robert Town's Oscar-winning script. Looming over the story is the imminent eclipse of the 70s filmmaker-friendly studios as they gave way to the corporate Hollywood that we know today. The story is very dear to the hearts of the Paramount community because Robert Evans, of course, made all those deals of that time. Affleck's love of film history is what drew him to the project, along with the nostalgic tone the story brings. It's unknown whether he would act in the project, but the script is sure to attract A-list talent. Between Evans and Dunaway to the great Nicholson, the number of real-life Hollywood legends set to appear in The Big Goodbye surely will attract actors to portray the people they grew up admiring. 
Uh, this will mark his first directing job since 2016's Live by Night, as he's been focusing on acting over the past four years. So, Joe, I'm excited, not only just because I love Chinatown, the stories behind Chinatown, but there's going to be actors playing Jack Nicholson and Faye Dunaway and Roman Polanski. That's going to be fascinating. Yeah, who do you think, off the top of your head, who do you think would play Jack Nicholson in the set in this movie? I'm going to just go with Christian Slater because he's always looked a little like Jack Nicholson. Uh, and I think he looks pretty good for his age now. Like Maybe you have to make him a little younger, but... I mean, Christian Slater with those eyebrows. I mean, he made a bit of a comeback here with Mr. Robot. So how about Christian Slater as Jack? I like that. And because off the top of my head, I was thinking like Leonardo DiCaprio because he kind of has the same hairline and, and similar face and build. But I don't think I could watch him play Jack Nicholson and not just think of Leonardo DiCaprio playing Jack Nicholson. So I like your pick for Christian Slater. Yeah, I mean, that casting definitely is going to be fun. And I love this story about James Gandolfini, one of my favorite actors of all time. Love listening to Green Day. Every day we get new stories, particularly by listening to um, Talking Sopranos, the podcast from Michael Imperioli and Stephen Sharippa. And so this information comes courtesy of Michael Imperioli, who replied to a question, asked what sort of music Gandolfini liked. He said, Green Day. He said he would play the vinyl of Dookie in his trailer at work. Totally serious. No joke. He loved Green Day. I mean, you think about that album. I mean, Basket Case is a great song. Just imagine Tony Soprano like getting worked up in between scenes. He's got like a huge fight with Carmella or Johnny Sachs or Polly, and like he's listening to Basket Case. Do you have that dime? Like he, he's listening to Welcome to Paradise. Like that that to me is very, very interesting. Is it not, Joe? Oh yeah, but I could totally see him listening to Basket Case right before his therapy sessions with Dr. <laughs> Melfi. Just like you're right, you know what? Sometimes I do give myself the creeps. And sometimes my mind does play tricks on me. I see my dead friend as a fish at the pier, you know? <laughs> well done. Just singing along to Longview and all the rest of those songs, you know, horrible, psychologically damaged New Jersey mob boss. Green Day would definitely get him in the mood. You know what gets me in the mood? Rags Time with Scott Rogowski plus Mount Rushmore, Brian De Palma movies. That's coming up after the break, plus my review of Ant Time from Charlie Coffey. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Get ready, guys and gals. It's time for Rags Time with Scott Rogowski. A pleasure to bring back Rags Time. That's right, Scott Rogowski. You know him, you love him. If you're in case you're just joining us here on the podcast, you missed a couple episodes, he's going to be a part of every single episode moving forward. You can follow him on Twitter. You can follow him on Instagram. Uh, last week, he talked about John Cassavetti's husband. So I did want to tell this Cassavetti story before I throw it over to Rags and find out what he was watching this week. But I, I rem I'm reminded of this story when Scorsese made Boxcar Bertha, which was his second film. And it was a, you know exploitation picture made with Roger Corman, the great B-movie impresario. And he showed the movie to John Cassavetti's and Cassavetti's told Marty, congratulations, you just wasted a weird of your life making a piece of shit. And Marty's like, what? And he's like, listen. It's obviously well-crafted, well-edited, like you learned how to make a movie, but there's nothing to this. Like, make something personal, make something from your heart, which then motivated him to make Mean Streets, which, of course, announced his arrival as a major filmmaker. So there's a little John Cassavetti's addendum to the fact that Husbands is a terrible movie. Rags time. How we doing, brother? Oh, I'm doing better now that I had that little nugget of information to carry me through the week. <laughs> Boxcar Bertha. Have not seen Boxcar Bertha, have you? Yeah, it's not one of Marty's best. Probably one of his top three or four worst. I, I wouldn't be as damning as Cassavetti's because, listen, he was making one of these cheap and dirty movies. You know what this is like. This is like as a comedian. Hey, listen, play to the cheap seats. We got a bunch of hookers and thieves in here. Can you just do a quick five-minute set and go on your way? Sure. So Marty was making a quick movie in a shoestring budget. I think it was decent for its time, but I wouldn't highly recommend Boxcar Bertha. The, the one thing that's memorable is there's a crucifixion death scene at the end. I'm like, okay, Marty definitely tapping into his Catholicism there. He's Catholic? I had no idea. <laughs> no, what I want to know is this. You, you, you were tempted to watch more Cassavetes. You said that last week. Did you dive into more Cassavetes or did you go in a different direction? I, I tell you, Adnan, I forgot to take my Adderall this week. I got a little distracted going on Criterion. <laughs> and 
I, I was looking through, you know, I, I I pulled it up, and they actually had, I guess, because of my Cassavetti's uh, viewing last time, they had Mikey and Nikki popping up, uh, which another Falk Cassavetti's film. And instead of clicking on that one, I clicked on, for whatever reason, La Strada was yes. underneath that. And La Strada is one of those films that I've always heard the name. I've never seen it. You know, I know it's incredibly influential, and they've some some people consider one of the top ten movies of all time. And you know, Fellini, and I, I've actually never seen a full Fellini, even eight and a half. I saw maybe the first twenty minutes, maybe the first eight and a half minutes, honestly. And then I I, I got I got distracted on that one. But uh, so I said, you know what? I gotta I gotta see some. I need some Fellini in my life. I'm feeling Fellini right now. So I popped on La Strada, and yeah, I don't know. Have you seen this movie? Listen, I love La Strada. Nino Rota's music, about as beautiful as it gets. Scorsese did the intro to La Strada on the Criterion, which I have. And before you get into the criticism, which I'm sensing, he said, for some, it's a little too sentimental. And if, if that's your issue, he goes, well, then, yeah, I mean, it is a sentimental movie. He said, but he was struck by the fact this ugly character, Arrivato Zampano, Anthony Quinn Strongman, who is abusive to Fellini's real-life wife, Giulietta Messina, he said, I like the fact Fellini is able to find some humanity within him. And that, in fact, in some ways was a, I don't want to say a prototype, but influential towards Raging Bull. Jake LaMotta, a despicable character that finds some humanity within him. But I liked it. I love the, 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 the uh, obviously, the clown is crazy, that whole era, the, the music, the sadness of it. But I'm guessing it didn't work as much for you. Nah, I mean, look, Quinn was cool. I liked him. He, he's kind of got this swarthy, homeless Bogart look going in this movie. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he, I love I love the Zampano. Zampano! I love how his whole act is that he puts a, a quarter-inch, a quarter-inch steel chain or iron chain around his body and, and breaks the chain, you know, expanding yeah, yeah. his lungs. My pectoralis! And, the, and the, you know, you need lungs of steel. He says, and like this whole audience, everywhere he goes, he's he's an itinerant, you know, uh, a street performer basically. And every town he goes into, he does this little act for, and this is his big finale. And like everyone goes nuts apparently, and gives him money for this, for like cracking a little chain, which you know, I I mean, I, I'd rather I'd rather if I was an audience member, I'd rather watch Zampano beat the crap out of Gelsomina, which he tends to do when they're not performing. Because he's quite abusive, this guy. Well, he's a bad guy. There's no question about it. And that's why when you texted me, you watched The Strata. That was my first thought. I'm like, the, the thing that is most dated about this movie is how pathetic his grand finale is breaking that quarter-inch chain. Like, seriously? You're going across the, the country? People are raving about this? Yeah. This is, this, is, this is what passes for entertainment in 1950s Italy. But, you know, the post-war period was pretty rough. Uh, for this country, and, and in the very first, you know, I, I, I was doing some research on the economics of the film. So, uh, just to set this up for those who haven't seen it, the film opens with uh, this very, very poor family. We see them, you know, on, on the beach. I don't know, I guess gathering, I don't know, seagrass or something to make some kind of stew. They have no money. They're very poor. And uh, Anthony Quinn rolls up in his little jalopy, and he's. Tells, he tells the, the, the mother that, I guess, he had the daughter was his assistant for many years, and the daughter died. So he announces, your daughter is dead. I need a new, I need a new girl for my act. And so he goes back to the family, and he's like, yeah, I want the sister. I want someone else from this family. Right. <laughs> I guess, I guess this, this poor family in the middle of nowhere is, is the, uh, number, <laughs> the number one resource for circus assistants. So... He picks out Gelsomina, who actually is Fellini's wife in real life, right? Gilletta right. Massina. Yep. And he pays the family 10,000 10, lira, 10,000 lira for this woman, basically buying this woman into slavery. 10,000 lira in 1954, I looked it up, 16 U.S. dollars. 16 <laughs> U.S. dollars in, in today's money, $153.34. So that's what it costs to buy a woman, $153.34 in today's money. And, and, and for what? I mean, she has, like, he's just buying her because she's related to the other woman? She, 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 the whole, the whole con, see, that was my, see, I, I'm, when I watch movies, and maybe this is my problem as, as a moviegoer, but I really, you know, it depends, of course. If it's a fantasy film, if there's, you know, a lot of CGI, if there's some kind of sci-fi thing going on, okay, you can suspend your your disbelief. 
But if this is like supposed to be a gritty reality film, I'm just like, in what world does this make sense? But but nevertheless, you know, Gelsamina, this like poor, innocent, very ugly, unattractive woman as she's painted to be. I mean, Richard Basehart, the other guy in this film who plays El Mato, the fool, he keeps calling her artichoke head. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and he's like, there's one scene where he's just blatantly, outwardly insulting her to her face yeah. just calling her just like ah you're so ugly i don't know who anyone would want to be with you why why would i want to have you to work for me you're you're hideous you're an artichoke head and like and she just takes this all on the chin ah i feel so bad for this gelsamina who ultimately ends up being abandoned by anthony quinn and zampano and dies as a total like you know psycho case she kind of loses her mind the whole thing is so bleak when it comes down to it. I mean, these, this is a hard scrabble life of these itinerant circus performers. But it's hard to—it's hard to have sympathy really for these characters. As, as and, and that's also, you know, you want to watch a movie, you want to be emotionally moved and charged. And I don't know. I mean, Anthony Quinn—he's a total brute. And you know, at the very end, you kind of—you kind of see he realizes maybe I've made a mistake. Maybe I've been treating people wrongly my whole life. He gets sentimental and breaks down. But. You gotta wait to the very, very end for that. And I don't know, it doesn't really pay off for me, to be honest. Yeah, what I liked about it was that cruelty of Zampano was juxtaposed to the innocence of Gelsamina. So I, I liked the fact it was almost a story about just how mean and cruel men can be. That the fact, like you said, this guy is so exploitive. Although you bring up an interesting point about the 16 lira, I did not realize, like, or whatever, $16, I didn't realize it was that kind of a bargain. But <clears throat> that's where I thought it had a real, listen, that was Italian neorealism. I like the poetic nature of the movie. I like the fact that there was this tenderness beneath the cruelty. And you're right about Richard Basehart. I mean, he's just this giggling idiot. And the way he insults her is unbelievable. And yet he has this charm to her and she can appreciate that he is a kindred spirit like her and I, I by the way i loved her performance juliana messina she's chaplain-esque at times the way she's making those funny faces to herself i loved it so much so much chaplain uh, you know influence on her on fellini of course fellini actually cast basehart i was reading about it because he felt that basehart brought some chaplain qualities to his performances um and the other thing that bothered me, and again, this is I was looking into the production of it and how the sound was recorded on Fellini's films. He recorded with, with no sound, and, and the dialogue was pumped in later, which allowed him to work with international actors. I'm like, holy crap, Anthony Quinn, is that fluent in Italian? I know he was Mexican, but he knew, and, and Richard Basehart's from Ohio. How the hell does he know? It? But it turns out they were speaking English, and all the Italian was dubbed in later, because I did watch the Italian version with the English subtitles on Criterion. Right. So I'm trying to watch the mouths. I'm like pausing. I'm like, wait a minute. Are they? I, I spent a good 15 minutes trying to decipher if these guys were actually speaking Italian, if I was losing my mind because I couldn't match up the dialogue <laughs> that I was hearing to their mouths in English or Italian. I couldn't make any sense of it. Uh, that, that, that's, I guess, thanks to, to you know, due to uh, the production techniques that Fellini employed here. But you know, I, I may, may, maybe I have to get out of my head a little bit more when I watch some of these movies, especially the older ones where, you know, yes, for audiences at the time. Look, I watched It's a Mad, 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 Mad World also pretty recently. And my God, I remember my dad telling me this is one of his favorite movies growing up. This thing was so bad and so boring and unfunny and so long. And like, and, and, and there's, there's this scene of the Three Stooges. You know, like, you know, of course, there's 500 people making cameos in that movie. And the Three Stooges are billed in the beginning. And then the whole thing, the Three Stooges, there's a shot where they pan over and they're, they're wearing fireman costume. They don't say a word. It's just the Three Stooges in fireman costumes. And apparently when this happened in 1960, whenever the film came out in theaters, people went nuts. Audiences applauded like crazy just to see the Three Stooges. And I'm thinking to myself, man, like, you know, like again, the, the, the quality of entertainment and the way things have changed, the fact that an audience would lose their minds just to see the Three Stooges. In, in fireman costumes. Like, I mean, we've come so far. Maybe we need that sort of innocence these days. I don't know. I'm completely confused on how to read it, but these older movies sometimes... I mean, look, Bicycle Thieves, I loved. I loved yes. You know, I, I, like, there's certain, certain films I absolutely love and the emotions hit me, 
But this one I, didn't grab me as much. All right. Well, fair enough. Listen, it works for some, works for others. You at least appreciate what Fellini was going for, the tragedy of it. It's very allegorical. I mean, the ending it packs an emotional wallop when you see that he's realized the error of his ways. He's this pathetic character. But I get it. The, the brutish side, uh, you weren't as uh, intrigued and, by. And but of it, course, it wouldn't be Rags time without bringing some political elements to this. I, I can't watch movies anymore without t- talking about allegories for our current state of affairs. And I was actually, I found another one in this movie with Zampano, this strong man, this brute, being, of course, America, <laughs> being, you know, our president, and, and, and Gelsomino, this innocent, sweet child who wants to love, who wants to love America, who wants to, you know, be a part of the show, right, who wants to buy into this dream. She gets constantly abused, constantly thrown aside whenever she wants to step out and maybe learn the trumpet or maybe work with Richard Basar. No get slapped away and pushed aside. And I see Gelsomina as, as all true American patriots and, and, and lovers of democracy who want America to be great. And yet Anthony Quinn Zampano, this brutish strongman, is just so ugly and it's so, so hard to love and so hard to be a part of. And, 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 and we're just getting rejected and we're saying, and we're being uh, brutalized. And it's, that, that, that's what I saw in this film. As watching in 2020, I saw as an allegory for America in this state. And Anthony Quinn Zampano, unfortunately, is America. Ugh, that's a horrible stuff. Maybe I should go watch it again because you're right. Maybe there are parallels that I would see in the modern world. One last thought here. Didn't you love where he's teaching how to say Arrivato Zampano? And he's, he's saying it virtually verbatim, and he just keeps barking at it. He's just incent Arrivato Zampano. Like he wants his, his, his title be said with this really guttural noise. I thought that scene was hysterical. <laughs> that, was a, that was a good Arrivato Zampano. Yeah, but that's the point. I mean, she's trying. She's trying so hard. And she just wants to be loved and she wants to be accepted. And again, just as, as all you know, freedom-loving Americans, we are trying to accept this country and trying to love it. But we can't. We, we're, we're being told we're not, we're not American enough. We're not the real Americans. All that bullshit. You know? this is, this is, that's how I read the film today. I also want, love one, 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 uh, one scene really got to me. And I guess it's one of the more famous scenes with Il Mato, Anthony, uh, Richard Basehart, telling Gelsomina, you know, they have some time alone. Zampano was in prison because he, he went crazy again. And, and Basar says, you know, everything in life has a purpose. Because Gelsomina is basically suicidal to, to, to suicide, suicidal thoughts. And he says, no, everyone has a purpose, even this pebble. Even this pebble has a purpose. And I don't yeah. know what it is, but, you know, you can find your purpose too. And that was a very powerful scene. That, and that really spoke to me. Um, so that, I, I, I do recommend watching it. I'm not going to say don't watch it. It's clearly considered a classic. I would say watch it. Judge for yourself what you think. And there's some beautiful moments. And it is a bit of a poem on film. Yeah. There, there, there are definitely surreal moments, neorealist moments. And you should, uh, you should watch it. It's part, of, it's part of cinema history. And I actually lament the fact that, that, that what happened to like, the, the, the foreign auteurs? We don't really have them anymore. You know what I mean? We've got, we, we got, we got Bong Joon-ho winning for Parasite. But does he have a real style that is so unique the way that you know, Truffaut or, or, or Fellini or these guys had? Is it more no, content? it's a good point. Like if if you say the term Fellini esque, even if people have not seen Fellini movies are no aware of that what that means, right? The surreal style and the poetry and the music. If you say Kurosawa esque, you understand. Okay, yep, Samurai's got it. It's true. If I said Bong Joon Ho esque, most people have seen Paris, but that's it. There wouldn't be a style unique to him. So that's an excellent point. I mean, with Bong Joon, it's more it's more about the, the content, right? Like Snowpiercer and Paris. Like like there's a lot of class issues. Okay, that's good. But in terms of the right. in terms of the actually cinematic style and and the the tones and things, it's you know Parasite. It it was basically a, a big Hollywood production, right? I mean, it didn't it didn't right. seem like it didn't seem like it had uh, any of that um, that auteur quality. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't think you are at all. I think it's good stuff. Rags time, as always. You can tweet us at Scott Rogowski on Instagram as well. I can't wait for what next you find on Criterion. we got to get this segment sponsored by Criterion. We'll talk to Joe, because clearly you're diving into this library, and there's lots of great films out there. Oh, would you rather watch me watch uh, uh, Too Hot to Handle on Netflix? If you want me to review that, I can do that too. <laughs> well, you texted me if I was going to review The Old Guard. Thankfully, I skipped Shirley Theron's latest on Netflix, but I... I want you to review whatever you're into, and I, I trust me. I like the I like the direction where you're going. We've got Cassavetti's Fellini. I'm curious where we go next week. All right, I'll I'll, I'll do some research myself. <laughs> All right, thanks, Rags. Adios. All 
right. As promised earlier, Antkind, Charlie Kaufman's 705-page book. I've got my review. I've got assorted reviews. And I'm going to read a lot from the book because that's the best way that I can give you a sense of what this book is like. Matthew Spector, The New York Times. Nothing more than a New York Times book review, right? I quote, Pompous, opinionated, self-conscious, self-loathing. B is an astonishing creation, a volcano of ridiculous opinions and absurd neuroses, a balding, bearded nightmare of a person whose involutions, excuse me, whose involutions could practically carry a 700-page narrative by themselves because they and he are so riotously funny. B is the main character of the book, B. Rosenberger Rosenberg. Spectre goes on to write, And Kind is an exceptionally strange book. It is also an exceptionally good one. It's just got to be one of the strangest books I've ever read. I mean, I'm reading this book thinking to myself, A, I really miss Charlie Kaufman. And by the way, he's got a new film coming out. It's an adaptation of a great book I read called I'm Thinking of Ending Things. It's coming out in September on Netflix. But I just miss his writing. And he's just so absurd and so strange and so surreal and so out there. There's nothing else quite like a Charlie Kaufman material. I mean, I'm I'm talking about screenplays, but the book itself, you can really feel his essence and his style. Um, and it's a shame we've missed it for so long. And that was my biggest thought while reading it, especially the first half. I thought it was incredibly funny and very inspired and darkly satirical. And then the second half, I thought it became too long and overdrawn. But I don't necessarily hate the fact it's 705 pages. I mean, listen, I finished the Jim Carrey book in three and a half weeks. Excuse me, three and a half days. This took me three and a half weeks. But I didn't hate the fact it was so long because I said, you know, it's giving me more of Kaufman, right? It's almost like you had enough of the... the Cheesecake, but you let me just keep eating it just because I love cheesecake so much. Even though I'm not feeling the reward as much, let me just keep going. It kind of felt like that way for Ankind for me. I'm like, it's been so long since I've had any Charlie Kaufman material, like, you know, 15 years, 16 years since uh, Eternal Sunshine. You know, I'm willing to take this. AV Club's review, they said he's batting almost 1,000 when it comes to the result of his movies. However, having spent the past two months patiently reading Ankind, and after giving a good amount of thought, my strongest belief is that despite the book's various likable qualities, Charlie Kaufman has disappeared up his own ass with this novel. Given the overwhelmingly meta elements at work, I should probably make clear I'm being metaphorical with that statement. With only two hours or so of running time to play with, there's a firm structure in place that mitigates the desire for excess. Talking about movies. But here, Kaufman's talent for the absurd refuses to bend to any structure whatsoever, stretching on to what feels ad infinitum at points. It gradually becomes enervating, a novel simultaneously overstuffed and plotting. Given free reign to dump the contents of his mind into prose, Kaufman crams into Antkind as many one-joke premises, surrealist curlicues, superficial lampoons, and pinchin-esque reworkings of his premise. The result is bloated and frustrating, less an embarrassment of riches than a dearth of restraint. The experience of reading about a very silly man's Kafka-esque descent into suffering becomes a Kafka-esque process in itself. You're saying to yourself, okay, I want to hear what the book is actually like, right? You want to hear some snippets? I got some snippets for you. It's about a film critic, B. Rosenberg Rosenberg, who is just a mess of a human being. Uh, As he says early on, as I pack, I consider the sage words of brilliant New Yorker film critic Richard Brody. It's not enough to love a movie. It's important to love it for the right reasons. So he's one of these real pompous guys who thinks that, you know, cinema is art and you can't enjoy proper movies and keeps correcting people the fact they keep thinking he's Jewish because his name is Rosenberger Rosenberg, which becomes one of the many running jokes. And also the fact he's an African-American girlfriend, which, I mean, listen, this book, they hammer you over the head with the jokes. I mean, it's funny, but it's like... I'm not kidding. They make at least 20 references to the fact people think he's Jewish or the fact that he has an African-American girlfriend. He wants to let everyone know about that. He also makes fun of Charlie Kaufman a lot. What Kaufman does not understand is such high concepts none end in themselves but an opportunity to explore actual mundane human issues. Kaufman is a monster, plain and simple, but a monster unaware of its staggering ineptitude. Kaufman is Godzilla with dentures, Halloween's Mike Myers with a rubber knife, Pennywise the clown with contact dermitis from living in a sewer. He is a pathetic human being, <laughs> which if you've read Adaptation, you're not surprised that Charlie Kaufman will be taking a scalpel to Charlie Kaufman himself. And you're saying, which of his movies is this like? Yeah, it's a lot like Adaptation and definitely has elements of being John Malkovich because it's so self-referential. Later on, he's talking about the Me Too movement. And he says, I'm not ashamed to be a feminine man. I take creative work inside me like semen. I allow it to impregnate my egg-like mind to gestate. And what is born is the intercoiling of these two consciousness. Without sperm, there is no impregnation. But without the egg, the sperm is useless, hardened into an old sock. 
I am receptive to true art, to true creativity, but I will not have people like Charlie Kaufman force themselves in to rape my mind. I will claw tooth and nail. I will name names. Hashtag me too, Charlie Kaufman. Hashtag me too. Just killing himself. I mean, at least the main character is. Uh, Later on, he's talking about, again, this whole concept of toxic masculinity. You know, he says no means no. Something should be done. He's in love with this woman, Sai. She is young and tall. Her form is muscular. The thought of Sai taking me creates more sexual bother in my groin. I watch her ass and imagine it pinning me to the ground, on my face. I'm a pathetic creature. I'm a bug, a slug, an ant. Is the bartender her boyfriend? He is young, tattooed and handsome with a broad chest and chiseled jaw. He would dominate her, I imagine, and she would like it. I could never dominate her, not even in my fantasies. <laughs> like, I mean, he's just absolutely killing himself at all times. Uh, later on, he's talking about the movie Memento. So to give you a, a sense of what B. Rosenberg, Rosenberg movies are like, I once had the audacity to call Richard Roper to task for his fresh tomato ranking of Memento, which he deemed an ingenious exploration of how memory defines us all. It is, of course, nothing of the sort, but rather a one-trick pony gimmick fest that reveals through its paucity of ideas and pseudo-noir yawn mannerisms that both Christopher Nolan and his pool boy, Richard Roper, are intellectually bankrupt and emotionally callow. Just taking apart memento. I'm like, oh man, this guy B. Rosenberg Rosenberg is not messing around. A little later on, he's talking about, again, he's being rejected by these women. The level of frustration I feel is extraordinarily high. I kick a garbage can and an apartment manager chases me for three blocks. Barasini is in his office with a client, so I have time to masturbate inside the antique armoire in the waiting room. I can't get hard but have an explosive and satisfying orgasm nonetheless. The humiliation of not being able to form an erection adds to the humiliation of my fantasy, which adds to the orgasm. Something terrible is happening to me. You get a sense now of what this character is like and just how tormented he is. Later on, in a very funny sequence, he's making fun of this other woman who's not making jokes, and he is honestly making better jokes. So her name is Henrietta. She suggests horseshoes for horse customers. This joke falls flat. She's embarrassed. I suggest whores shoes. You know, five-inch red sequin stilettos. Everyone laughs again. Alan slaps his knee, then mine, then goes around the table slapping every knee in the boardroom. What I've done is taken Henrietta's terrible joke and turned it into something golden. I've made lemonade from Henrietta's shit. I'm suddenly trying, thinking of trying the open mic night at one of the comedy clubs downtown. I have in my life been a fierce advocate for humorlessness, as I believe comedy is almost always harmful since it makes fun of those less fortunate and when punching up more fortunate, but the laughter intoxicates me. Henrietta, meanwhile, stews. Her eyes light up. She shrieks like a harpy that between my foot-binding idea and my whore joke, it is totally clear that I am some sort of a misogynist. As a first, second, and third-wave feminist, I am infuriated. This is the thing that irritates me so much about women. They think they can go around with impunity casting aspersions on men, while I hold all women to the standards to which they claim they want to be held. That is what a true feminist does. There is only one way to responsibly respond to Henrietta's vile attack. I will pummel her into the ground and leave her for dead. So in rapid succession, I come up with three serious specialty shoe ideas. Retro shoes for hipsters, booties for your dog, and designer baby shoes with cute names like Gucci Gucci Goo, Mark Fisher Price, and Toddler Oldham. Bam, bam, bam. You're dead, Henrietta. I am the king of this department and you are dead. Alan beams at me in a way that feels almost paternal, even though he's 30 years my junior. His look sends an odd, pleasurable tingle through my body. I have almost forgotten about Cy, but of course not entirely, and that tingle reminds me. The book goes deeper and deeper into his own descent. And then we get to the Donald Trump jokes. And I got to be honest, at first I said, no, no, no Trump jokes. I mean, that's about as low-hanging fruit as it gets now, right? I mean, everybody can make fun of this guy. But he does indeed assume the character of Trump, who he calls Trunk, and listen to this. I watch my shows. I play golf. I shake ugly people's hands. I make a joke and everyone laughs. I eat hamburgers. Mar-a-Lago has a private McDonald's just for me. It's not small, though. It's really big. The biggest McDonald's in the world, they say. I can sit in lots of different gold seats depending on my mood. And they have table service, which is unusual. Malonia, note the difference, and the boy aren't here. I'm not sure where they are. I wish I liked her better, but I can't divorce the first lady. I've checked. She's ungrateful and she's not that young anymore. What is she, 45? I don't know, but let's face it. I'm a billionaire and I'm the president of the United States. What's the point of all that I can't get fresh pussy? 
It's like a twilight zone where you finally get everything you want. And you can't have fresh pussy. I mean, I don't have the same drive as I used to. I won't tell anyone that. No one needs to know. It would damage my reputation. But with the pills, I can get to where I need to be as far as boners go. And let me tell you, there are a lot of actresses who call me up secretly because it's bad for business in Hollywood to be seen with me. But they say, Mr. President, I want to give myself to you. Many famous actresses and singers, too. It's funny. They say to me, Mr. President, make me great again. Sometimes they say, Mr. President, lock me up. They say, Mr. President, I bet you're huge. But I can't have any of them because having sex when you're the president of the United States is not private. I get lonely. There then ends up being a, a trunk doll that comes there. Listen, he has sex with a doll. There's a lot of strange stuff here. It's all over the place. And one more quote I'm going to read. I post it to my blog, B. B is for blog and wait. I do not currently get a lot of traffic on my website. The last piece that received any comments was entitled 2010's Dumb Dreams for a Dumb World, a brutal but necessary takedown of Christopher Nolan's Inception, to which a reader called Smell My Nuts responded, you're a cum bucket, to which I wrote, thank you for your interest in my work. Notice how I've used your. This as an attributive adjective is its correct spelling. You would have been better served to write you're a cum bucket, in which your is a contraction of you and are. But no matter, I certainly heard your intended disapproval loud and clear. Allow me to respond to each of your salient points. Number one, I've never functioned as a cum bucket. I am perhaps to my detriment exclusively heterosexual and have never served as any sort of receptacle for semen. I do not, however, consider it an insult to be thought of as such. Indeed, history is rife with brilliant and essential cum buckets, as you call them, and I would consider myself very honored to be counted among them. I wish you all the best in your future intellectual pursuits. To which he wrote, ha 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 faggot. I responded, Perhaps I did not express myself with enough clarity, so indulge me as I make another stab. I am not gay, and I tell you this only as a matter of fact, not in an attempt to distance myself from the gay community with which I am on wonderful terms. Many of the world's greatest poets, artists, philosophers, and scientists were gay, and as I stated earlier, I would consider myself honored indeed to count myself among them. To which he wrote, you're a cock smoker. At this point, I thought of giving up. This fellow doesn't seem to be hearing anything I'm trying to say to him, but I couldn't let it go without at least three more attempts to reach him. Ant kind, a selection of many of these. Also, one last one here. How about this? The costumes were reminiscent of those in Will There Be Blood? He screws up the titles, by the way, of movies all the time. Will There Be Blood? A subpar film by the lesser of the Paul Andersons in which international prize ham Daniel Day-Lewis embarrasses himself once again, this time in a handlebar mustache and a Mel Blanc just read Stanislavski for the first time performance. But I must say with extraordinarily accurate attention paid to wardrobe by brilliant costumer Mark Bridges. This is Ant Kind. More from Gabino Iglesias of NPR. Charlie Kaufman's Ant Kind is a novel only Charlie Kaufman could have written. You could call it a brilliant piece of metafiction or a marvel of postmodern storytelling, and you'd be right. We could also call it bloated or a flashy, eloquent mess, and you'd also be right. He's obsessed with race, can't stop talking about his African-American girlfriend. He wants everyone to know he isn't Jewish. He's extremely preoccupied with transgender people and preferred pronouns. If you were to measure great novels by their ability to surprise readers, then Antkind is a great novel, and there's no doubt that Kaufman is a master of language and has a seemingly endless imagination. Uh, I would completely agree with that. Antkind is a bit overstuffed, but we all overstuff ourselves at a buffet once in a while. Hmm, good line. And Peter Bradshaw, The Guardian, it's funny, exhausting, and very, very long. Uh, he has a habit of getting his cultural references wrong, perhaps through incipient dementia, or perhaps because he occupies an alternate universe in which they are correct. Are you talking to me, I say, reminding myself of Robert De Niro in the TV series Taxi. He is also obsessed with the work of bro comedy maestro Judd Apatow, whose films he is always putting in his insufferably hipster best-of-the-year list. Perhaps Kaufman despises Apatow, a distinct possibility, or perhaps he is amused at the business of solemnly analyzing commercial comedy product. But B's misremembered dialogue from Apatow's film, This is 40, is both surreal and hilarious. Ultimately, I recommend Ankind because it's like nothing I've ever read before. It's 705 pages. I thought the lyricism and the writing quality is at a high level. I mean, Charlie Kaufman is truly one of our, our great writers. And whether it's dialogue in movies or prose that he's writing, you can tell that you're in the hands of a guy who really is a genius. Having said that, uh, those sections that I was reading to all of you, those are mainly in the first half of the book. The second half of the book just gets far too strange, far too nutty, and just too long. There's some detours into other parts of his brain that just aren't as interesting. But I will give it three maple leaves, because again, it's got chutzpah and style and imagination. Yes, it's too long, although as I said before, I didn't mind the fact it was too long. You know what? Once in a while, it's good to read a 705-page book. You feel like you accomplished something, and I feel like Charlie Kaufman accomplished something with writing Ant Kind. Joe, your thoughts? It sounds dirty, but really smart at the same time. And listening to you read those experts, I'm just thinking, uh, what a weird look into Charlie Kaufman's brain. Um, what, is there a way that he could have streamlined 
the last second half of the book or were there chapters you think that could have been left out or is it just him delving further into his brain that's kind of the turnoff? Yeah, it's it's the latter part. He delves further in his brain. He ends up making up these other characters called Mud and Malloy, which are like a reference to Abbott and Costello. And I thought they were really unfunny and unnecessary. And I thought the first half was mainly focusing on him, B. Rosenberg, Rosenberg. I could take those neuroses all day because it's so funny the way he beats up himself. Again, it has shades of not only being John Malkovich going inside the brain and the meta level of Kaufman talking about Kaufman and movies in general. And by the way, film critics love Charlie Kaufman and this film critic is a terrible person. So I'm I'm curious what he's trying to say here because critics have always loved his work with the exception of uh, maybe a couple along the way. Synecdoche in New York, I know, was, was not very well reviewed, although I didn't think it was particularly a good movie either. I saw it at the Toronto Film Festival. I do love Philip Seymour Hoffman. But normally critics rave about his work. The guy's won an Academy Award. So I did find it interesting. The entire premise is he's really taken a hammer to the idea of film critics and what snobs they are. But yeah, I thought the second half, he just took too many detours going in too many different directions. And uh, as one of the reviews said, you know, if you love Kurt Vonnegut, if you love Thomas Pynchon, it's definitely books in that, uh, in that realm. And obviously, it'd be a pleasure to talk to you about on Cinephile. And the good news is he's got that movie coming out. I'm thinking of ending things. So we get more Charlie Kaufman here in the year of 2020. Which was your favorite excerpt that I read, Joe? The Trump one, honestly, because, I mean, you're right. It is low-hanging fruit, but that is satire taken to a totally different level his internal monologue the biggest mcdonald's in the world they say like that is super super funny and i watch late night now and it's you know a lot of repetitive jokes about the president each day in and day out but this is new and original so i, I that was my favorite yeah i'm glad you liked that it was definitely fine trust me when when the doll comes up that looks like him he starts kissing himself and i mean it's just it's really funny it's disturbing but also very very funny which is a good way of describing charlie coffin's ant kind now time for our mount rushmore of brian de palma mount rushmore all right, as discussed earlier, I wasn't crazy about Blowout, although I appreciate Joe's uh, passion for it, particularly being a sound engineer, and it's got some good moments to it, but I just found it to be uh, too, too heavily cribbing from other movies. So as far as his best movies, I want to just give a shout-out to a couple of movies he made early on, Robert De Niro movies. That's right, Bob has always thought of as being Marty's guy, but his first couple of movies were with Brian De Palma, Greetings, and that was 1968, and Hi, Mom, which is very funny. I've, I don't remember if I've seen Greetings. I must have seen it, but I definitely remember Hi, Mom, and it's very funny, particularly the first 20 minutes. They've got this whole situation where uh, De Niro's character gets involved with black exploitation. I remember the song, Be Black, Baby, Be Black. It's really, really funny. You should check that out. Uh, but as far as the best films, listen, Scarface to me, towering gangster epic, absolutely changed the genre, widely influential, savaged by critics at the time, but now everyone realizes it's a masterpiece. You got Pacino's indelible performance. Scarface is an absolute no-brainer. I still love The Untouchables. I mean, again, huge performances. De Niro's Capone, but I thought Costner, never better as Elliot Ness. Uh, Sean Connery won an Oscar for playing Malone. Incredible script by David Mamet. Andy Garcia is very good. And De Palma puts his own style on it. I mean, that whole sequence in the train station, the baby carriage is going down in slow motion. Uh, where Frank Nitti gets thrown off of the top of the building. Uh, there's lots of incredible sequences that only he could do. And amazing music, by the way. Great score by the late Ennio Morricone. So Scarface and the Untouchables are in for me. Uh, after that, it gets a little tricky because you know what? Like, how do you not include uh, Mission Impossible? But I'm going to avoid Mission Impossible. I'm going to avoid, I'm going to include Carlito's Way, another film we did with Al Pacino. I think Sean Penn is really funny as Kleinfeld, but I love Pacino's voiceover, the music of it, and uh, just the whole operatic style of this gangster trying to get out. At times, maybe it's a little melodramatic, but I love the last 10 minutes. I mean, again, that whole sequence where he's running through the subway and the mob guys are trying to catch him and there's no dialogue. It's De Palma's best. He just uses the camera and just has an absolute blast to bring you the visceral thrill of the films that he makes. And lastly, I'm, God, I, I really want to mention Casualties of War. I'll give it an honorable mention because uh, I do think it's a good movie. It has some flaws, particularly in the middle, but I do love the, the opening and the ending. But I'm going to go with Carrie, which I just watched a few months ago. One of Quentin Tarantino's favorite movies of all time. Uh, Carrie is fantastic. I mean, that is truly a young girl's nightmare. And it's a little schlocky now, but you can appreciate the inventiveness of the camera work, how ingenious it was, the way you could admire Sam Raimi's work with Evil Dead or Evil Dead 2 or stuff like that. Um, again, unforgettable. I mean, the steamer she gets her period in the shower. I mean, you forget about it. I mean, it just... Oh, horrifying to think what high school girls go through, and Carrie brings that nightmare to life. So that's my Mount Rushmore. I'm going with Scarface, Carlito's Way, The Untouchables, and Carrie with a shout-out to Casualties of War. Joe, what do you got? All right, well, 
I wanted to get uh, different genres that he's directed in here. I'm, I think I'm a bigger fan of Brian De Palma's thrillers, but I want to get a little bit of everything in. So first, I will agree with you with Carrie. I'm going to throw that in. Crazy horror movie. It, it can't be gory. Um, and something I found out, Brian De Palma's 1974 film Phantom of Paradise, Sissy Spacek was a set dresser on that movie and so that's how they met and then a few years later she was in carrie oh, wow. after that i you know since you did untouchables just to back you up on that the casting's perfect i feel like the entire cast that was the role that they were born to play but if you're gonna go untouchables i'm gonna go scarface for a gangster epic al pacino really really great and then i, I will do mission impossible big blockbuster but i think brian de palma's fingerprints are all over it from the open opening sequence to the actual heist uh really great movie and then my number one as i discussed earlier blowout not just because i'm a sound engineer i think it is a genre bending film it's a slasher movie it's a political thriller it's a crime drama it's a satire and you know young john travolta with that uh little dimple on his chin you can't go wrong with that i'll go blowout mission impossible scarface and carrie you are a sucker for the cleft. Uh, thankfully, no mention of The Bonfire of the Vanities, often considered one of the worst movies of the 1990s and probably De Palma's biggest bomb. I mean, it's an amazing book by Tom Wolfe, and Tom Hanks was hideously miscast. Melanie Griffith, Bruce Willis. I mean, it's just an awful movie if you want to go see the worst of Brian De Palma. And in fact, his later career wasn't nearly strong. Mission Impossible is a fantastic movie, but since then, that was 96. 98 Snake Eyes, Nick Cage, Wildly Over the Top, Mission to Mars, Femme Fatale with Rebecca Romaine, The Black Dahlia, Redacted, Passion Domino. I mean, he's had like eight movies. Just completely bombed, which is why he hasn't really, I don't know if they completely bombed. Maybe Mission to Mars made some money, but hasn't been well-received as his earlier movies. So you're right. When people look at the filmography of De Palma years from now, they're definitely going to look at those thrillers. You know, we didn't mention them, but listen, Dress to Kill, Body Double are both very good. Uh, and they're going to mention, you know, his gangster movies and his thrillers and the fact he was a guy who worked in lots of different genres and obviously uh, was obsessed in many ways with Alfred Hitchcock, which is why the film is called Obsession, which we did not mention, but certainly is worth a look as well. All right. Thank you so much to Scott Rogowski. Thanks to all of you for listening and subscribing. I appreciate all of you. We got more new films coming out this month. I know Jimmy Fox has a new movie coming out on Netflix, so hopefully we'll get some more new releases and hopefully we can get back to the theaters. Stay safe. Uh, and until then, I'll see you at the movies. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.